Welcome to the Day as a Dev podcast. I am your host, Kevin Lesht, and my guest on this episode is Jem Hilton. So excited for this one because Jem offers a story all the way up the stack. He's made deliberate choices throughout his career, the first of which, a hard pivot away from his position as a philosophy instructor and into a boot camp to restart as a software engineer. From there, he's moved with purpose and is now managing a team at Leafly, the largest cannabis website in the world. We talk about all of it on the show and focus on the tactics and strategies for forwarding a career. Now, my conversation with Jem Hilton. Seattle, Washington for this one. Jem Hilton is my guest. It's 68 degrees, slightly overcast outside, but that's not stopping us. We've got the the sound, the bay, Elliott Bay, would you call it, in the in the distance. We're in Pioneer Square. Jem, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yes, you know, so much to talk about. And Jem, this might be the first episode where we travel linearly through a career because your entrance into the tech industry is very interesting. You didn't begin your professional life as a software engineer. And I thought we could start by having you set up your background and just framing for us, you know, what prompted a move towards career in tech? Yeah, I was not interested in software engineering in my initial college days. I studied philosophy and anthropology. I wanted to be a professor. Uh, We live in an interesting time where becoming a professor isn't really a viable career option any longer. Uh, And uh, I also was living in an interesting time and place, Chicago in the late aughts, early teens, uh, the rise of startup culture in Chicago. Um, and my wife at the time got a job at a startup in a tech incubator, 1871. Uh, and she mentioned to me that there was a boot camp, uh, called the starter league that was, um, just starting up and they were taking students. And if I was interested in a career change, which I had been talking about for a little while, uh, that the starter league seemed like it might be an interesting option. So I explored it. It looked like something totally different from your standard, uh, um, you know, regular college education, uh, sort of path. And, uh, yeah, I sort of just went for it. Um, and I haven't really looked back since it was really, it was really a turning point in my life. Um, and it was sort of, you know, an accident of time and place where we, my wife and I sort of were in Chicago. Yeah. Boot camps are just so interesting to me. You know, we've got, uh, at home chef where I'm currently employed, plenty of boot camp graduates and, I always feel as someone who's self-taught that I missed out. I see what they bring to their jobs, you know, just the mentality that the boot camp 
uh, seem to instill and then, you know, others who maybe got a formal degree. So I'm super curious about boot camps in general. And I, with Starter League, I would be curious, do you feel that you were set up well for the real world with the exposure? I think Starter League, how many weeks was it? It was maybe... (laughs) 12 weeks. 12 weeks. So with the 12 weeks you got out of Starter League, maybe you could give us a rundown of in 12 weeks, what does that curriculum look like? And maybe even down to a given day, what does a day, you know, humor me here, play into the show. <laughs> day is a day. Yeah. What does a day in the life of a boot camper look like? And if you could scale that up to the real world that you entered into, did it, did it prepare you well? Yeah, it's interesting thinking back at Starter League, which was really one of the very first boot camps, and it really sort of was a pioneer of the boot camp sort of as a mechanism for entering into like a software engineering career. Um, It really didn't prepare me for the day-to-day engineering. And I don't know at the time whether, I don't think that that was the intention. It was more of a mechanism to start to give you the tools to launch your own startup, to give you the tools to create an MVP of a website and pitch investors. And so the daily focus was to give you the minimum skills to build a website. And being Chicago at the time, Ruby on Rails is king and... That was the easiest sort of entry point to creating a non-trivial web app. Um, so Starter League really focused on not foundational computer science skills, but getting a website up that is the embodiment of a particular sort of startup business that you're trying to start, um, and then being able to present that in a way where you could acquire funding. I think was the main focus of that. So it wasn't really of the same vein as the the bigger boot camps that came out of there, like General Assembly and Dev Boot Camp. And so, in terms of the my ability to function as a software engineer, it really didn't provide me with those skills. I had to learn those on the job later. That is interesting. That is not the answer I was expecting at all. <laughs> you know, uh, granted, so my exposure mostly to boot camps, yes, are it's it's unfortunate that it has now closed down, but Dev Boot Camp uh, graduated quite a few uh, colleagues that I currently work with, and was not expecting that answer because their take on the experience they got out of boot camps was quite the opposite in that it, it sounded like it was more so focused on, yes, those foundational paradigms that do set you up for practical application. So maybe with you, we pivot into your your first job. You know, you graduate from the boot camp, and then I'm curious when you go after that first job, was there help from from Starter League, or what did your process look like for landing that first gig? And maybe you could even give us some insight, too, into what your resume, what your portfolio looked like at the time. A lot of our listeners out there, students, career changers, 
I know even myself going after my first internship, it was anxiety inducing, you know, there granted you had a a career, albeit in a different uh, industry behind you. But for me going after my first internship, right, I really had my education block on there and then had to stretch to figure out what I could present to even try to land that, that first job. So yes, for you, what'd your process look like trying, trying to get your first role and, if you could give us too just some insight into into what your resume looked like at the time of applying to those first jobs. So at the time I was an adjunct instructor of philosophy at Northeastern Illinois University. I had just gotten my master's degree a couple years prior to entering the boot camp. Um, I focused on formal logic and ethics. So I had a a pretty solid background in informal logic, which is the foundation of computer science anyway. So I felt very confident in my ability to sort of like learn on the job because the skills were pretty closely related. Um, aside from that, uh, I knew that I didn't want to pursue a career in philosophy, in higher education. Uh, I didn't want to get my PhD. There's a lot that's involved in getting your PhD and a lot of it isn't conducive to living in one place or having job security Mm -hmm. or, you know, a secure lifestyle. And we can get into all of the the problems (laughs) in higher education. Um, I was ready to make a change. I'd actually started taking some computer science classes. Uh, One of the few perks of being an adjunct instructor at a university is you get free classes. So I started taking some computer science classes because I wanted to at the time, segue into either some sort of IT profession. I didn't know what. Um, So when my wife, who was working at a startup in 1871 in Chicago, um, suggested I start, I take classes at Starter League, I wasn't fully sort of informed of like startup life and just like the the world of tech, I I guess, as a profession. Um, But as I started taking classes at Starter League, um, which was three days a week, about four hours each day, um, I realized that like I wasn't going to get the foundational skills there, but I was in a place in which there was a very vibrant startup tech community and culture, and that I just needed to just be in it and absorb it and start making connections and networking. And that was really the source of my first like job and segue out of starter league. It wasn't putting together a resume as much as it was just directly networking, talking to people, being in the community. That was the biggest sort of um, like reason why I was able to immediately jump into a a career into tech rather than like struggle to like get my first job. And um, it, uh, involved me going to happy hours. I know this is all very like kind of cliche and it's hard to say, well, I got my first job at a, at a happy hour with some tech bros, but that's sort of what happened. And I, I, I call them tech bros in a, in a friendly way, not in like a, uh, in a kind of pejorative way. There were a couple guys that had their startup at 1871, and uh, we just had a good conversation. I told them where I was at, what I was doing, my background. They liked that I had a philosophy degree. They valued, you know, education beyond just what can you do for me. But you know, they saw the capacity, 
And I think that's an important thing is if you can sell your capacity to learn, especially for your first job, uh, that will go a long way. Um, and I ended up getting a, an apprenticeship with them. They mm. didn't have an apprenticeship program. It was just two guys or the startup. And they were like, yeah, we just want to, we just won a competition. We just got an infusion of capital. We could take, we can afford to take you on. And they're like, we'll teach you how to program basically. So it was like a self-made apprenticeship that I just ne- negotiated with them at a happy hour. <laughs> I love that story. I think it demonstrates that, yeah, the two things you hit on there, which really jumped out are a proactiveness, uh, maybe three things. Okay. A proactiveness, a work ethic and the community. It seemed like the, the marriage of those three things are what, you know, formed the, sort of ad hoc position that was this this apprenticeship that that was your first role. And I think it's, yeah, so I don't have uh, insight into other industries, but the community really is a special thing in tech. I think back, the story that triggered too is there's this quote out there, I forget who it's attributed to, we'll have to drop it in the show notes, but it's that luck is really the intersection of preparation and opportunity. And what really drove that home for me is I was at a CodePen Chicago meetup and candidate was looking for a job and was using the meetup to to network, just as you mentioned you did, you know, going to happy hours and things like that. This candidate put together a bunch, CodePen, for those aren't familiar, it's a platform where users can really upload uh, front-end demonstrations, little demos, experiments, concepts, although CodePen is really now expanded. We can go a whole show on CodePen to hosting projects and everything else. This candidate specifically put together a demo that he was leveraging to uh, demonstrate just his ability, his passion for front-end development to try to land a gig. And after the, this was a show-and-tell kind of meetup, after the showing wrapped up, everyone was catching up, we had a conversation, and then, uh, you know, this candidate ended up, I think, landing a job off of uh, a member that was also at the meetup. And so you think about, yeah, going back to luck being that intersection of preparation and opportunity, this person prepared in advance a very in-depth demonstration of his skill set and then happened to parallel that with being in an atmosphere of the tech community and being able to just demonstrate to others around that that he was looking for a job and trying to just best leverage that situation to to network with individuals and, and to try to try to land a gig. And I think that's sometimes what it takes. You know, you have to have that proactiveness to go out there and to try to really, you know, get these things for yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that was really... I had a single-minded focus. I think that was really the the key. I knew that I I knew that my starter league education wasn't going to be sufficient. It was the thing that get, got my foot in the door into the community, and it allowed me access to pitch myself to the community. And I think that was the important thing. It's finding that entry point so that you can start pitching yourself, especially when you come from a non-traditional background, right? You have to show capacity, desire, and like a very like laser-focused intention to know what the next step is realistically, not unrealistically, right? Like I knew what I was lacking. It was more of a formal or like less, maybe not even formal, but like on-the-job training, mm-hmm. you know? And that's where I I sort of, thought to myself, well, I need to 
not just, you know, get a job, but I need to learn more. I knew where I was lacking. I knew where my skills were just missing. I needed an apprenticeship. I didn't need a junior engineer job. I don't think I would have done well, or it would have been more of a struggle if I had gone directly into just like a 40 hour a week junior engineering position. I would have struggled a lot more on the job as an apprentice there is this sort of built-in idea that you're learning. So there's, there's uh, you know, more of a, an employer incentive to not just give you stuff to do for them to produce value, but that they also have an intention to teach you or train you more so. So that was sort of my focus. I was like, I need an apprenticeship. How am I going to get it? I found some people who are willing to do it. And it was very fortuitous. I was, it was a lot of right place in the right time. You know, I, I don't want to say that it was all, I mean, there was a lot of luck, right? I mean, there was a ton of luck. It was, it was just exactly the right place, right time. We, you know, we're, we're some dudes too. There wasn't a lot of like cultural friction, you know, like there sure. was, there was a lot that went into it that was also like, you know, being, you know, a white male in that particular community, uh, you know, being able to easily connect with other white males, <laughs> you know, which I don't want to discount in terms, especially when, you know, you're a person who doesn't immediately have that same peer group. Typically, um, for me, it was easier in some ways because of that background that I had. Yeah, I think I appreciate it. I think it's yeah. a, it's a very candid and real thing that exists out there. As far as the apprenticeship program itself goes, that I think is so great because I want to say that, you know, for a lot of entry level applicants, it's something they should maybe be looking for, you know, a sort of prove it and and earn it kind of um, relationship. Uh, I have seen personally play out only in favor of those that are invested that are genuine about trying to enter the industry and almost treat it as sort of an internship. You know, you might not be getting college credit because you have graduated at this point, but you are positioning yourself. You know, what's very real about the tech industry is the salaries are generous and it might take some apprentice, some internship kind of investment for yourself to land there. But if you are passionate about the field, if you want to be here, uh, sometimes you know that that might be what it what it takes to land there. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that an an approach I've always sort of taken, or at least a, a way that I see the industry is, it's much more of like a new trade than it is more of mm. like a you know a professional industry. In some ways, I feel like today's everyday software engineer is more like an electrician or like a plumber, right? That this, this idea of the apprenticeship model and the learning of the craft, it's much more, it's much less, um, we're doing hard computer science, which there is some of that, you know, in our everyday, but it's much more, we are learning a, like a craft or trade and following that sort of model that's already been kind of proven out in the trades is something that I think going forward, for the software engineering industry and just you know tech industry in general, um, I see that trend going where experience, what have you done, what can you build, is more important than formal education, and um, also like general virtuoso skill set, right? Like you don't need people who are math math magicians. You need people who know how to put together the building blocks 
that of libraries, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that that's something that like is a very valuable skill. It's like, well, what have you built? What kind of work ethic do you have? You don't have to be a genius. You just have to show that you have done things, that you have the capacity to do things, you can work hard, and that you know how to just build, right? Yes. I think that, I love that analogy. I think the craftsman um, parallel to that of a software engineer, a technician, a web developer, any of these kinds of things is so true in that. And I think what it what also plays off of that is why you see such a strong emphasis on the mentor to apprentice, 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 go apprentice, <laughs> apprentice, yeah. apprentice uh, relationship in our industry. Because yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of it is trade that is learned on the job. You know, you can only grab so much and it's going to set you up well, you know, if you have um, learning outside of practical application, but you can only take yourself to such a point before you actually have to, you know, build out a feature and see how the actual tech stack relates to these, these concepts that you have learned about. The rubber hits the road. Do you know how to build this tool within the specific context of your ecosystem, infrastructure, business problems, constraints, right? Those are not going to be you're not going to learn that in a classroom or a boot camp at all. It's just not going to happen. So maybe to play off of that, you're at your first job and now short-circuiting our way to the end of it mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, for everyone, right, whether it is sooner or later, uh, a job is going to end. And maybe even to just dig into that for a second, mm-hmm. I think closing out a job, it's a totally natural and valid thing. Uh, you know, looking at when to maybe move on Everyone is going to have different motivations. Uh, even for me personally, I think it's primarily about learning. Some companies, some companies are going to offer a long vertical that carries good career progression, and I've been fortunate to experience that. But but for others, you might find yourself plateauing, and especially in tech, I think I think it's so important for developers to ensure really for their own safety that that they are still learning. And, and learning doesn't have to just be focused on, on technical application. It could be people, it could be product management skills. There are all sorts of, of laterals of valuable attributes to work on that, that will keep an individual competitive. So my short question that follows this long setup, because something I appreciated, you know, full disclosure, Gemini, we had the opportunity of working together. What I really always admired about you is you seemed very in tune about just career progression, uh, self-advancement. And I'm curious, two angles here. The first being that while someone is employed, right, how can they best leverage their organization uh, to, to forward themselves? And then the second angle that will set up as well uh, would love to dig into both sides of this at whatever hits you first would be, you know, as, as maybe you figure out that you're reaching the end of the line, how do you even recognize that and, and, and learn to really, uh, start looking for a new job? How do, how do you know when, when it's time to look for a new one? But maybe if we could first dig into while employed, you know, what can an individual be doing to make sure that they're setting themselves up for success? Yeah, I think that that's an important question. That's that's much more of just how do you be the owner of your own career sort of question, mm. right? Like you need to first take ownership that you are in charge of your own development 
that's not going to be provided to you by any company, even if they claim to be very, you know, proactive about professional development. You need to sort of be the owner of your own career. And the first step is to uh, get a good rapport with your manager, the person who you directly report to. And I think that you need to have a very candid, open relationship with them that involves managing up, setting expectations that you have of them, and then asking them continuously for feedback on your own performance and goals that you have for yourself. So set it like a good manager should help you set goals for yourself and your own professional development. If they're not a good manager, they're probably not going to talk about those. It's still on you to set those goals for yourself, make them visible and public to your manager. Let them acknowledge that those are your goals and ask them if they're able to help you achieve those goals. And would that be, so you mentioned a second ago, managing up. Yes. Uh, that that would be an example of that managing is a, Yeah, up. that's exactly what it means to manage up. Ma- set your goals and expectations for what they should do as a manager. And if they can't meet those goals, that leads to the next question that you have, which is how do you know when it's time to move on? Because mm-hmm. sometimes you might be in an organization where the organization itself might be somewhere where you want to be, but because of the way that you know most companies are set up, you're in some sort of hierarchical system, right? You have you have a manager that you report to, and they have a lot of power or authority over your career progression. In fact, maybe too much sometimes, right? And in those cases, that's typically when you might know this person has not acknowledged that these are my goals, or they have acknowledged them, but have not given me any sort of real feedback that they're going to help me achieve those goals. Now, in practice, and I haven't been anywhere where I've ever had a manager who's been completely obstinate or has not responded to managing up. Um, so I think that you'll, as an as a new or you know in progress or really at any time in your career, you know engineer, um, these are just good tactics. I think step one, know what your goals are. Step two, communicate those goals to your manager and ask them if they can help you achieve those goals and whether or not those goals are achievable within your organization. And then keep up with those goals and get feedback from your manager, asking them if you are working toward these goals, say you want to be a senior engineer and you, you know, you're three, four years in and you're like, I want to take the next step to becoming a senior engineer. What do I need to do these, these are the kinds of things I want to do. What else do I need to do? And how can we track that progress toward that goal? Is that something achievable within this organization that I'm in? I like that, that setting right there, which is that, is this achievable within my organization? Because I think the reality of the real world is that there are constraints. You know, everyone has a boss. Every product has certain directives that they need to drive forward. So yeah, unfortunate as it may seem, sometimes you may hit up against those walls. And then to your point, it's just about having the awareness for recognizing them and then knowing that maybe both sides of this relationship have gotten as much as they can out of it and that it's time it's time to move forward. Yeah, I think that's kind of how you can move on to the next phase, which is I'm going to start looking for an organization that can help me achieve these goals. So for me personally, uh, 
going from place to place. I've worked at four places, I think, before I finally landed at my job at Leafly. Each one of them, I sort of advanced in the way that uh, I had hoped up until a point. And when I realized I was going to have to sit for a year or two longer, or there was a leadership change after I felt like I was advancing. So for example, uh, here's a good example. I, I got a job at Centro in 2016 ish. I'm, I'm trying to think now it's been a long time. Um, and that was my second engineering role. Um, like full engineering role, non-apprenticeship. Um, within six months, I was made a team lead, probably prematurely in terms of like my, my technical skill set, but I had done a good job of you know the soft skills of being a team lead and working with product and understanding you know how to ship a product even if I wasn't building it, you know, sure. It, awesomely right you know like my my code wasn't the greatest but you know i wrote good tests and uh you know it shipped on time always Uh, test your work exactly so if you don't write great code write good tests and it's okay right um so the person the director who had put me into that team lead role got let go and we got we had new leadership and that new leadership didn't think that I should be in that team lead role. So that was an indication to me that this wasn't the place that I needed to stay at. Right. So, um, a lot of times, you know, people that, again, that are, uh, uh, in positions above you who are your advocates or helping you progress in your career, even if they know you're not quite ready for the role, but they believe in you and believe in the capacity that you show, um, if they're still there, that's how you know that this is a place you can grow in, right? You have people that are, they're going to bat for you and they're there to help you. And like, they're going to put you in positions to succeed, even if you yourself are not uh, super confident in it, having people believe in you. But when those people are no longer there and you don't feel like you've got people going to bat for you, that is typically a good indicator that it's time to move on. And thankfully, we've all chosen a profession where we have a lot of options, which is not the case for a lot of different, you know jobs. That's right. Yeah. So to give you maybe what plays into a couple things there to give you an example from outside the tech industry that hits on, I think what in an essence you described, which is having an awareness for just the dynamics that are your workplace. Um, You know, it could be a position that you love the organization, you love the team, but you just don't see uh, growth ahead. And I think that's, it's a really hard decision to make, but sometimes one that you do have to uh, you know, uh, understand is going to be for the benefit of your longer term career. The example that I wanted to pull in was a friend of mine was working for a professional sports organization. This was his dream job. He grinded out a finance position prior to this where he was putting in, you know, 100 hour weeks just to set up his resume so that he could land this dream job that was at this professional sports organization. He got there and it was very quickly that he realized it was a small close-knit team. And the two managers that were directly ahead of him, they also loved the job and they weren't going anywhere anytime soon. So he did not see you know, a track ahead. And he sort of had to come to the realization that, you know, this is a very ambitious person. If he wanted to uh, forward himself, he was going to, and he loved, he loved this team. 
the team that was the sports team and also that was his immediate, you know, colleagues and peers around himself. But if he wanted to forward himself, you know, he had to, uh, he had to move on. And it was, it was, I think of such a difficult decision for him and something that is, is just really hard, I think, to make in general. Yeah, no, definitely. I've, every place I've worked at has had, like, I've been very lucky and, you know, I think partially it's, it's, so it's a gut feeling you have when you're interviewing, knowing that you're going to go into an organization that has a relatively good culture and, you know, life work balance, et cetera, good people. Um, but I have a mercenary streak inside of me. And I think that's <laughs> something that like everybody should cultivate a little bit. Uh, how about this for a segue? The moving out part, when we did work together at Home Chef, uh, you were in office, but then you moved out and you went remote for a while. And what I would love to set up for our listeners would be uh, just even how that conversation looked. You know, I think that it's sometimes difficult to raise those kinds of I don't know what you would call them, I guess, workplace requests uh, up to to your manager. And I'm wondering if you could stage for us when you were looking to move out of the office and to a full-time remote position, you know, what did that conversation look like? You know, how did, how did you just first broach it to, be, to begin with? So I was very strategic about even taking the job at Home Chef. I had actually had two competing offers uh, at a, one in another company that was actually a slightly better offer. Um, but their requirement was that they would never be at least in the, sh- the near to medium term, a remote friendly company. And when I was speaking with home chef, I had talked to them about the possibility that I w- at some point would want to move. And if they were open to having a remote engineer, um, and they said, they did not have a current remote policy, but they would be open to it on a case-by-case basis if I demonstrated you know, being responsible and adding value to the company. So I had set it up from the very beginning, and I think that's an important thing when you're interviewing at places is to get them, get them to not necessarily 100% agree, but at least be open to it, and then you can kind of just bet on yourself. And that's sort of what I did. I just bet on myself. I knew that I would add value to the company. I knew my work ethic and what I could bring to them. I also knew that I was not getting everything I wanted in terms of a role, uh, like a title and salary. So I knew that this would be part of the total negotiation package that at least I would be getting a flexibility. And that was, so that set up the conversation that I ended up having about nine months later. I think that's an important thing to consider there in that if the offer letter you don't immediately receive meets what you are looking for, there are other things that you might be able to incorporate, you know, vacation days, remote work, whatever it might be. The important thing there, I think, is, as you mentioned, seeding seeding that early. Yeah. You know, you're talking about in the initial conversations, even setting this up so that just the the groundwork is laid for that eventual uh, set yourself up for for that option mm, if you eventually yeah. do want to pursue it. Yeah, I think that that was the key was just being very strategic from the very beginning. And, you know, that's that's something that's very difficult in general. You just have to have very clear goals. And so this is. This is something that is not specific to a software engineering career, but maybe just in life in general. What are your goals? What do you want? 
And if you can bring a very clear focus to any sort of job negotiation that's built off of your goals and ask the right questions that will let you know whether or not the goals you have personally are going to be achievable within this organization, whether they're professional, whether they're lifestyle, then that should be part of your um, process by which you determine where you want to go work, what kinds of uh, companies you're going to want to, you know, pursue work that might involve like your, in your friend's case, a lot of, you know, upfront work to even get considered for that position. Right. Oh, so absolutely. Clear goal setting is really like the, the elephant in the room here. Right. I think sometimes too, it's just so difficult because especially as a, a person entering the field, you might just get so caught up on receiving that offer letter that you don't take a step back and really uh, reflect on what your goals are, what your position in the market is to, to go after these things. And it's such a valuable thing. But thank you, Jim. That is so helpful because I think there's a lot of hesitation around, uh, you know, just even talking about these kinds of things. So offering up real patterns for people to follow out there is really what this show is about. Mm, so I am yeah. very excited that we've been able to, to dig in. And as an extension of remote work, the other thing I'd love to dig into is you know, I love a good work from home day, just like anyone else, you know, anything from being able to run laundry in between tasks <laughs> or just, just be in a more relaxed environment. It's an awesome perk. But on the other side, I always do wonder about what, what that setup would look like in more of a longer term fashion. I do think about if I, if I would miss the social aspect that is the office going in, seeing friends, colleagues, just being in an atmosphere with your peers. So I wonder in your remote experience, were there any unexpected negative consequences that you ran into that you didn't necessarily project? Yeah. It's, so I have a particularly difficult situation in that I have two very tiny kids. Mm. And uh, my wife was working freelance at the time that we went remote. So it, all four of us were home at the same time. So that was that was a little bit of a Maybe difficult... just a few distractions out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, just a little bit. So um, that may not be the case for most people. So um, in terms of the actual remote work itself, really for me, uh, as somebody who doesn't need as much in-office culture, um, because I'm older, I have family, kids... Um, it wasn't really a huge deal other than uh, needing to just have some sort of um, Work time separation. Out. Yeah, time out. So I would go to coffee shops, co-working spaces as well. I think those were just, just strategies for me to feel like I was out and about and not totally isolated. Um, in terms of being a remote engineer, we can go into detail about the skills and sort of habits of a good remote engineer in, in a separate topic if we have, want to, but just in terms of how I made that transition, um, I felt great about it. I really enjoyed the ability to focus on just the work and not all the distractions. I felt like I was pretty productive, um, although I did start looking for another job pretty quickly. Uh, so I feel like I didn't really get to do remote for a very long period of time, and you probably want to talk to somebody who's been doing remote a lot longer. I do know from the position of a hiring manager now and 
having conversations in our company about remote engineering, what we look for, and that's typically somebody who has a track record of remote work. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it for a junior engineer to begin with. Uh, and transitioning to remote is something I would probably only recommend for somebody who's been doing it for four or five years or more. I think you raised an interesting perspective there that I had never considered, which is that you get to maybe a different point in life, as you mentioned, and you don't necessarily value those in-office uh things as highly as some other some other things like you know being able to be close to your family or whatever else might come along with uh anyone's remote situation but then yeah to your point i suppose you sort of do then need to find that that um separation so that you can can be productive not, that's not to say that there aren't distractions you know you think about a lot of the offices now trending to an open format where not only is someone's conversation really disrupting that given person, but also those surrounding them. So always, no matter your environment, probably probably just uh, factors to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned there for a quick second, uh, you know, do want to, to get you back to that family of yours and we'll have to peg some more remote questions for another future episode yeah. <laughs> because what I would like to get into as we get close to wrapping up the show here is you have very recently at Leafly now transitioned from being an engineer to being a manager. And I'm sure we could even spend an entire episode just on, on those things alone, but I would love to hit you with just one question, which is that, you know, how have your responsibilities changed as you've moved into now a position of management coming, you know, all the way up the stack from a boot camp to an engineer, to a senior engineer, and now to that of someone who is overseeing engineers? Yeah, it was, it's been a very dramatic transition and one that I knew was going to take place, but when you're actually in it, uh, it's a lot more intense and it's a lot more um, just frenetic. So as an engineer, you can focus on a problem for many days sometimes, right? You might be working on a feature that might take two weeks. And that's your whole kind of, aside from, you know, team-related uh, backlog grooming or, you know, general, uh, you know, process stuff, you're kind of just focused on one thing for a while as an engineering manager pretty much only have about 15 to 20 minutes to focus on one thing at any given time Mm -hmm. in my day before I have to switch to the next thing. So that constant context shifting, whether it's jumping into meetings with product or data team, product managers, uh, one-on-ones with engineers, you're kind of just jumping from one thing to the next. You're not really able to code at all, really very, very little. So that transition has been, it's been a little tough. You feel very unproductive, to be honest. And that's something that I know is just a thing that every tr- person who transitions into that managerial role struggles with. You can't knock out a feature or some bit of code that has an immediate impact that you can see it. it's out in you know production. Instead, you're just dealing with people issues and process issues. 
as I have heard these, it's it's interesting that you mentioned, yeah, I've heard the very similar conversations uh, speaking with others in, in managerial roles. And I guess as they frame it too, which it seems like what you just hit on, right? You might only have a few minutes with a given individual. So you need to know that you are imparting something that is going to have a cascading effect, you know, leading through delegation, you know, um, especially you have to use the value that is knowing the more macro level business context and then just decide disseminate that to the individual that, as you mentioned, can then spend the week on a feature or whatever it might be to to handle the actual execution of the directive that needs to be uh, be handled. Yeah, I think being a, you know, some people call it a force multiplier, mm. where you, you yourself are not doing the thing, you're just there to unlock or accelerate the thing. And it has to be a hundred things, right? So you have to be able to drop in. One thing that I've had to become a lot more just aware of is how prepared I have to be for every meeting because my time is so much more precious. So a lot of time spent planning, sitting down, task lists, checklists, very small, you're doing a hundred small tasks, but they all add up to you know more work than you can do in a day. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely been a, an interesting transition. I really like it. It's uh, I can see now. Before I, as an engineer, I never really saw it, but I can see now how burnout is a real thing. You know, that's something that I know that just engineers you know are at risk of, depending on where they are. Engineering managers even more so. I could imagine. I think the mental fatigue that he, anyone experiences coming out of just a long running feature, uh, trying to imagine that as you juggle, you know, all of these different laterals happening, these different, you know, things going on across the business uh, can be very difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe the the theme of this show, which seems to be the the long running thread across all of our conversations, is that you know you have to be prepared for any of these things, whether it be a an engineering task, a people management task, or a task of just self advancement, and to execute on any of those things too, a proactiveness also has to carry with that. Jem, this has been. Awesome. I feel like there are just so many takeaways from this episode that people can just start applying today. As we close out the episode, wonder if you have any parting thoughts for our listeners out there. I would just encourage people to take ownership of their own career and really think about what they want out of it. When you have clarity of purpose and what your goals truly are, that's when you can really direct your energy toward that goal. If So focus, <laughs> set goals, execute. Yes. Jim, thank you for your time. For show notes and more on this episode, head on up to the site. That's dayasadev.com. While you're there, check out our release notes. This is a short newsletter that we send out about once a week. It includes updates along with all sorts of other goodies packaged up for your inbox. Thanks for listening. For the Day as a Dev podcast, I'm Kevin Lasht.